morning. Mark 2, verse 1, page 1, 4, 2, 6. A few days later, when Jesus entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralysed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralysed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. We've never seen anything like this. What an understatement that is. I mean, it must have been marvellous. Can you picture it? A crowded house, the weather hot and sticky, people crammed into hallways and doorways, a mass around the front door trying to peer in and hear Jesus. Imagine sitting there in the room. Imagine people pressed up and around you. Imagine listening, listening to Jesus speaking just loud enough to be heard over the squirms and cries of children on laps and teenagers hanging out of windows. Jesus speaking of a new kingdom that has come, of the need to turn from old ways and to entrust yourself to a coming salvation. Then imagine footsteps, footsteps on the roof. It's not too uncommon. The roof is a normal place for a nap or a meal in an ancient home. But then you hear scratching. Bits of dust start to fall down from the ceiling. One bit lands on your nose. <laughs> a little bit of dust, then a lot, raining down on the people gathered to hear Jesus preach. Then dirt, big, big bits of dirt start to fall and tiles are removed until suddenly there's a massive hole gaping above you. You hold your breath. Everybody does. Everybody waits for what's going to happen next. And that's when a mat tied with ropes on its corners is slowly lowered down 
On it lies a paralyzed man, down, down, down to lie in front of Jesus' feet. I can imagine at that point you'd be able to hear a pin drop in the room. What is Jesus going to do? What is Jesus going to say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Five words, utterly unexpected, completely radical in their time and in ours. Five words that were you to contemplate today, were you to grasp today, would transform you entirely. Now, of course, we know Jesus will go on to perform that astonishing work of healing this man's paralysis, a healing so complete as to bypass the months of physical therapy that would be needed to help weaken muscles work and walk again. A paralyzed man walks again, a healing so astounding that it silenced the grumbling of skeptics and left everyone in awe, praising God and saying, we have never seen anything like this. Um, This account comes to us from a man named Mark, a contemporary of Jesus. We've got two other records of this same incident written down by two others. You can find both of those accounts in the Bible, but don't be fooled by that. Don't think that that means that they're written by the same person. No, the Bible is a series of independent documents brought together for our convenience so we can read all of its history in one place. So we have Matthew and we have Mark, and we have Luke, all who claim to have either spoken to eyewitnesses or have been present at this astonishing event, all who wrote down their accounts at a time when this event would still have been vivid in people's living memories. Be careful if you're tempted to dismiss it as some Chinese whispered rumour, a fairy tale picked up and written as history. Be careful if you're tempted to dismiss it that way because this is a powerful vivid event written down and attested by multiple sources at a time when it could have easily have been discredited, a time that where it would have still been strong in people's memories. This event, as astounding as it may seem, is history, and it's a history that we must grapple with. Now ponder with me for a moment. What must it have been like to have been on that mat? Your friends come and collect you in the morning. We have an idea that we want to try, they say. A healer that we've heard rumours of. He's healed others, maybe he can heal you. A growing sense of anticipation builds in you as they wind their way through the streets. The next thing, though, that you hear are groans of disappointment. How will we get to him? What can we do? Then a thought, a desperate thought. The roof, says one friend, we have to at least try, says another. And soon enough, you're being lowered down and a sea of faces are looking at you with a mixture of shock and horror. You land on the bottom and you look up at Jesus. And he says to you, son, your sins are forgiven. It's hard not to imagine feeling disappointed, isn't it? Hard to imagine someone in the crowd not pointing out Jesus' mistake, It's nice about the sins, Jesus, but have you looked at the legs? The legs, Jesus. Is being lowered through the roof not enough for you, Jesus? Have you missed it? Have you not understood? He wants to walk, Jesus. (laughs) 
Someone else will say, how typical of religion. In the face of real and raw need, all religion does is mouth meaningless mantras. Your sins are forgiven. Come on, Jesus. Live in the real world. How would you feel if you were that man? Son, your sins are forgiven. Those words, I think they challenge us because they show there is a vast chasm, a great difference between what we think we need and what God tells us we need. Jesus shows us that he is far wiser than the men on the mat, far wiser than the men on the roof, far wiser than the crowd watching on. And his wisdom is this, more than a cure to paralysis, more than a fix to this most extreme of disabilities, what we need is forgiveness. Imagine with me, if you will, that this whole incident ends at this point. And the man comes down on the mat, Jesus looks at him and says, you're forgiven, end of story. The friends eventually come down off the, root, the crowd, off the roof, the crowd awkwardly parts and lets them pick him up and take him home. His wife waits for him at the gate, excited to see her husband return restored, and she says to the friends, what happened? We don't know, they reply. The teacher said he was forgiven, and she said, this is a great disappointment. So the paralyzed man returns to his poor life, and a decade goes by, and another decade goes by, and he dies and suddenly finds himself walking through the gates of heaven. And in this imaginary scene, he goes up to the great desk at the front, uh, front gates and they will say to him, welcome. And he says, this place looks wonderful. How long am I here for? And the man behind the desk says, it is wonderful and you are here forever. The man says, I don't deserve to be here. My life has been a very messy life. I've not honoured or treated God or others as I ought. And they say at the desk, that's probably true. But it says here in your records that you've been forgiven and everything has been cancelled against you. He says, how can this be possible? The man behind the desk says it's all been paid for by Christ who died in your place and declared to you that day that your sins had been forgiven. So this man walks over in this imaginary scene to Christ and says, I'm so thankful that you've done this for me. When I came through the roof, I didn't really know what I was after, but you have given me something wonderful. A thousand years later, he walks up to Jesus and says, have I thanked you lately for what you did for me, that hot and sticky day? And a million years goes by and he walks over again and says, I just want to say thank you again for what you did for me. So wonderful. The four men in the story and in in this account came to Jesus looking for a very small gift, a gift called health. A good gift, but a small gift. Jesus gave the infinite gift of forgiveness. In six months, Avril and I will be going to a place locals call the poorest part of the poorest country in the world. The poverty in Tuliara, Madagascar is staggering. Over the last three years, the UN has classified the famine in the region as catastrophic, listing it as the second world worst food crisis in the world in the last 25 years. Alongside food insecurity, only 10% of people in rural areas 
have effective sanitation and sewage disposal. Healthcare is essentially non effectively non-existent and only 50% have access to a secure water supply. These needs are all urgent and they're all heartbreaking. But if we're to take what Jesus says seriously here, there is a need that is even more urgent than all of those things. There's an even more pressing need for Madagascar. In fact, there is no greater burden, no greater problem, says Jesus as he speaks these, those five words to the paralyzed man, no greater problem than how I might have the stain of my sins removed. Later in this account, in Mark's account of the things Jesus said and did, Mark records Jesus describing our hearts, describing our inner nature. Um, if you have a Bible open, you can turn there with me. It's just a few, a few pages over. Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 21. Mark chapter 7, starting at verse 21. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders. Um, he's speaking generally, though. Uh, he says, it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and they defile a person. Jesus is diagnosing. How are you going to deal with the sickness of your heart? How are you gonna deal with your deceit, with the lies that you've told? with your envy, with your joy at other people's failure, with your sadness at other people's success? How will you deal with your desire for what they have, with your gossip and your slander, for your putting down other people behind their backs for your pride? How will we deal with these things? How will you deal with these things? How could we ever face a holy God with these things? Why does God even care what I do, you might say? What's it to him, the state of my heart? Can you imagine the son whose mum gives him a home, gives him a car, cooks his food, washes his clothes, and yet he doesn't acknowledge or even speak to? Uh, he doesn't acknowledge or even speak to his mum. Oh, my mum, he tells his friends. My mum, she's a mum of love. She just gives and she gives and she gives and she approves of me whatever I do. How tragic would that be? Friends, in a thousand small ways and in large ways as well, we've cut ourselves off from the God who has so richly blessed us. We've not honoured him as God. We've not treated him as God. Every day we have used him. In one sense, you could simplify the Bible down to this. It's a book trying to help us see our need for forgiveness. Begins with the story of the garden. God made it all, created it all with great joy that he might know us, that we might have this beautiful relationship with him like father and son, father and daughter. And we take all he's given to us and we walk away. We don't thank him at all, but we become foolish and we take the things that he gives, the relationships he blesses us with and, he twist, and we twist them. And in the face of all this, the last thing I want is for God to deal with me as I deserve. The last thing I want is justice from God. Because justice involves God reckoning with me for exactly the state of my heart, for exactly the way that I have treated him. 
My sin chains me to a sinking ship. Unless and until that chain is broken, I'm tied to a sinking ship, a justice that hangs over me, God dealing with me as I deserve. But when Jesus meets us, oh, I hope that you're glad that he's not interested in rearranging the cushions on our sinking ship. He goes right for the chains and he cuts them. I want forgiveness. We need forgiveness. And only Jesus can give it. Do you remember how the religious leaders responded to Jesus' words in the account? Um, uh, Jesus' words, son, your sins are forgiven. Um, They thought amongst themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, they're right to question Jesus, I think. Sin by its, by its definition is an act against God. It's God who's ignored, God's world which we twist, God's word which we disobey. The, re- the leaders say only God can forgive sins and they're right. But that just makes what Jesus said even more incredible. Because in pronouncing forgiveness, Jesus makes an astonishing claim. Astonishing that he who walked the streets of Palestine, who got hungry and tired, needed to sleep, was God in the flesh. That he, this human, this son of man, in verse 10, had the authority of God on earth to forgive sins. Astonishing. And frankly, a little bit unbelievable. Jesus knows just how unbelievable that sounds. So he does something very kind. He doesn't say just take it or leave it, but he says, I will give you a proof now that you can trust the things that I say, the proof that when I say things, they happen. So he asks the question in verse nine, which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat and walk. Now, I wonder as you heard that read or as you thought about this story, this account in the past, how would you answer that question? Um, I wonder maybe you could take a break in your rows for just a moment and ask, take a little survey in your rows, talk to the people around you. Which one do you think is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up, take up your mat and walk. Maybe just chat to the people around you for just 10 seconds, see what they think, and then I'll ask you in a moment. All right, quick show of hands, quick show of hands. Okay, who says it's easier to say your sins are forgiven? Yep, okay. Who says it's easier to say get up and walk? Oh, isn't that interesting? Who's confused? (laughs) I think that's the point. I think that's the point. Jesus is challenging them in in their thinking. Of course, it's easy to say your sins are forgiven. That's something that requires nothing to prove, right? But what about our spiritual problem? What about the way that we've treated God? Surely that's the far harder problem to solve. Surely it's much harder to say that and mean it. Jesus' point is both are equally impossible. Both are in the hands of God alone and not in the hands of humans. So Jesus proves the thing you can't see by doing the thing that you can. Verse 11, he said to the man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. 
So at Jesus' word, Jesus' powerful, astonishing word, the man got up, took his mat, and walked out. Jesus' words have power. When he speaks, nerves reattach, muscles strengthen, neural pathways align, a paralyzed man walks. When he speaks, sin is forgiven. Mercy is extended to a lifetime of ignorance and disobedience. This is God coming to his world. Some think of Jesus as someone who's not, who is nice to know, a good teacher, an inspiring leader. You're a Christian, good for you, they say. Jesus is nice. They have such a pale impression of Jesus, a bare outline of who he really was. When Jesus came, he made claims that were not just good for a few, they were essential for all. When Jesus came, he didn't come to inspire people as a leader, he set the very universe around himself making a claim that no other religious leader has made in any other major religion. I am God. I am God come in the flesh and I've come to offer you forgiveness. Now, event happens not long after this one that we've looked at today, an event where Jesus gives himself up to death. And in that event, he makes very clear again that our greatest problem is forgiveness. In that event, he says, the need for forgiveness is so great that it requires God giving himself up to death. I, see, I hope you see by now that forgiveness of sins is not just nice to have. No, no, forgiveness is about where you stand with God. Forgiveness is about whether you carry the burden of your sin into judgment day to meet God or whether you may set that burden aside. It's hard to imagine Jesus being any clearer on this topic than in this passage. I mean, could he have said it any more clearly when he says to a paralytic lowered down in front of him, you're forgiven? Could he have made it any clearer than he did in marching to Jerusalem to die to win forgiveness for you and for me? I don't think he could be clearer, friends. If the God who created all things is providing me the opportunity for forgiveness, then I must receive it. I must take it. Four men in this account wouldn't let anything stop them from getting their friend's paralysis healed. Not a roof, not a crowd. Forgiveness is so much greater. You'd walk over cut glass, you'd do anything to hear those words. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Don't let anything stop you. Forgiveness is only available for a time and your eternity is at stake. Oh, how might you do this? Can I tell you it's a whole lot easier than digging a hole through a roof? All we need to do is acknowledge to God our need for forgiveness, and God rushes to forgive. I'm going to read out a prayer in a moment and invite you, if you'd like to share in it, if you want to acknowledge your need for forgiveness, if you want to come back to God knowing that he is willing and waiting to forgive then I want to invite you to pray with me. Now, what's, what's the prayer? It, it's nothing magic. It's not special words. It's simply saying sorry. It's saying I need forgiveness. And it's asking to live rightly with God under his authority, honouring him and thanking him. I'm going to pray it in a moment and invite you to make it your own. 
I'll pray it line by line and you can pray it too, not out loud, but in your own heart. Before I do that though, if you want to bow your heads, I'm going to give you a moment to first think on this because we don't simply want emotional reactions. We want people to think carefully and clearly. I'll give you a moment, then I'll pray, and if you like, you can pray with me in your heart. Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of forgiveness, but God, I need it. I need your forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me that I may be forgiven. Please do forgive me and change me that I may live a life that pleases and honours you. Amen. If you have prayed that prayer, then be assured a miracle has happened. The God of the universe says, I forgive you and welcome back. How wonderful. Can I encourage you to do, do let us know that you've done so by marking it down on that um, Connect card that Mark said so that we can celebrate you with you, celebrate with you this amazing gift of God's forgiveness. Thank you.